And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Book of Romans and uh, chapter 12. My uh, plan for this morning was to <clears throat> preach from Romans 12, 3 through 8, and on through verse 21. Uh, it's a dangerous thing to look into the context of passages, because I realize that it's kind of hard to preach on Romans 12, 3 to 8, unless you touch base with Romans 12, 1 and 2. And I know that this is an uh, incredibly familiar text to most of us have this passage of Scripture memorized. That is to say, intellectually, we grasp it. But the question I want to put forward to us this morning is, are we, as a church family, living Romans 12, 1 and 2? The word that has captured my thoughts uh, in regards to this text is the word commitment. Commitment. And it's fascinating that Paul would talk about this issue of commitment because what he's just finished in chapters 1 through 11 is an extended theological discourse that points to the grace of God in saving rebels through the blood of Jesus. 11 chapters spent on deep doctrine, or if you will, theology. Why is it that Paul then switches gears, goes into chapters 12 through 16, and he does this in a number of letters. In Ephesians, he does it in chapter 4. In Galatians, he does it in chapter 5, where he moves from deep theological doctrinal discussion, foundational truth, to practical truth. And I think the answer to the question is simply this. All doctrine and theology that we know is supposed to have a practical impact in our lives. What we learn of Christ and what we learn of God and what we learn of Christian living is to make a difference in our daily lives. And the good news that he expounds in chapters 1 through 11 is for application and transformation in our lives. It's why he put it there. It is the foundation upon which we live a new life. It's not for information. It's not to give us a bigger head so we could say we know more. It is intended to change our lives. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 if anyone is in Christ, Romans 1 through 11, he or she is a new creation. Old things are passing away. Behold, everything is becoming new. There is a practical outworking of the theological truth that our salvation is found in the shed blood of Christ alone. If someone's life is not changed following a profession of faith in Christ, let me be clear and let the word of God be clear. There should be no comfort in terms of assurance, in terms of salvation, if there is no level of transformation in life. It's impossible for Christ to come and convert your heart, regenerate your heart, and still have you live the same life externally. Whenever he comes, he comes with an effect. So when you read the truths of chapters 1 through 11, realize it's moving towards a life of transformation. That once you are in Christ, he becomes... Uh, the Lord of your life, and when he becomes Lord of your life, there are practical or ethical implications of the gospel in your daily experience. Chapters 12 through 16 in this text is a call to committed Christian living in the context of various relationships in the world and in the body of Christ at large. The key statement out of verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, uh, let me just read through and then I'm going to Try to point to the key phrase. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy 
and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and to know what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The main thrust of this passage, I believe, I believe revolves around the statement, I, be, I beg you or urge you, middle of verse 12, to offer your body as living sacrifices. Okay, the thrust of this text, everything builds around a call to give yourself totally body, soul, mind, and spirit to God for his use and purposes. And Paul says, in light of what I've talked about, the mercy of God in chapters 1 through 11 that redeems rebels and changes their destiny forever. In light of that, he says, I urge you to a life of full commitment. Give yourselves to God, I think, is the thrust of this text. And what I want to look at this morning is this. What are the characteristics of Christian commitment that emerge out of this passage of Scripture? There are many more that we could point to. I'm just going to point to a, a short list of them this morning. What is it that we're talking about when we use the word commitment? Commitment is this. It is a pledge. It is an obligation. Fascinating, when you look this word up in the dictionary, it has the uh, word engagement. All right, it is a pre-marriage promise. Okay, it is an engaging, it's binding together. Commitment is a pledge. It is the establishing of an obligation. It is the state of being bound to a course of particular action and purpose. And folks, I believe that God has called the church to a particular course of action and purpose. And that is to make Jesus Christ known in the world that we live in. And what that will require from every one of us is a pledge, a commitment, an oath of obligation. You see, it's easy to be part of a church and not be committed. It's easy to sit on the periphery of a church and not be making a vital contribution to its existence. We need to challenge that in our day because we live in a day that is very service-oriented. And the church needs to reoccupy the ground of deep commitment. And the kind of commitment that I'm going to talk about this morning is not commitment in general. It is Christian commitment. All right, so from this text, let's look at this topic of Christian commitment. The first thing I want to lay down as an establishing factor is this. The motivation for commitment. That's the question. Why should I commit myself to the cause of Christ and to a local outworking of the cause of Christ in my community? Why should I do that? And I think the answer to that question is this. And I think Paul is, Paul is just building in this direction. I believe it is the sheer goodness of God in Christ. The sheer, absolute goodness of God in Christ. Is the it's all the motivation that we need to commit ourselves to the life that he has called us to live. And so in the beginning of verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, and that becomes, okay, what is the therefore, therefore? Chapters 1 through 11, I think, is the foundation. It's the discussion that leads to the therefore. Okay? And then he goes on to tie it out a little tighter. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of the unmerited favor of God, the sheer goodness of God that is poured upon us through Jesus Christ. Mercy in this context is his pity arising in response to our need. His pity arising in response to our need. 
and his pity arises so highly and so greatly that he gives to us his son, Jesus Christ. His mercy can be summarized by saying this. He, the son of God, takes what I deserve and places, or, or the father takes what I deserve and places my wrath upon his son. The punishment I deserve is borne away by the body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, his son. Paul says, in light of that, the sheer goodness of God, commit yourselves to a new pattern in life. And this giving, this commitment is, as Jillian shared earlier, it is always a response to a prior love, a prior commitment. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his love to us when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were in our rebellion, when we were moving down our hell-bent way, he died for us. Folks, that's the sheer goodness of God, that he moves in our direction when we are utterly undeserving. And I think we can tie this out a little further, when we are unresponsive, because in this mercy, he overcomes our resistance and brings us to faith. I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 9 real quickly, just... Most of you will be turning back just one or two pages. Romans 9 and verses 15 to 16. The sheer goodness of God in sending his son to die on the cross and in overcoming our resistance to his work of grace. Verse 15, he says this. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy folks let that sink in your response to the cross work of christ is a result of god's drawing in your heart by his spirit overcoming the resistance of your flesh that is dead to the voice of god and giving you the gift of faith that changed your life if you know christ forever get down to verse 23 of chapter 9 he says what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. In other words, Paul's pressing in on this sovereign work of God's grace that breaks resistance in the heart of rebels and makes them and calls them to be sons and daughters of God by faith in the shed blood of Christ. Folks, when we comprehend that, we have every motivation that is needed to commit ourselves fully to the cause of Christ. The sheer goodness of God displayed in the self-sacrifice of the Son on Calvary's cross is all that I need to know because the result of his work on the cross, chapter 8 and verse 1 is, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Folks, because of the love of Christ and his sheer goodness displayed on the cross and in saving us and overcoming our resistance, we face no condemnation and that is the sheer goodness of God in our lives. We who are justified by faith and reconciled to God have the hope of everlasting joy. We have the hope of heaven with him forever. And I believe that the least that we can give to him in light of that is our life committed to the cause of the Savior. Secondly, I want us to look at the heart or essence of commitment. The heart or essence of commitment. The motivation, the goodness of God. The heart or essence of commitment is this. It is self-sacrifice. Okay, when, when, when you do a, uh, 
as a pastor, when you do a wedding ceremony, you are very conscious of a large commitment that you're calling an individual to in their marriage. Will you give yourself to them alone as long as you both shall live? What is that? That is a radical level of commitment where someone commits to care for that other person no matter what circumstances arise for the rest of their life. That is a large and radical call. In this text, here's the way that Paul says it. He says, brothers, I urge you in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. The imagery here is unmistakable to every Jewish listener. They knew from the Old Testament system that lambs were taken, killed, and placed upon the altar. And when that occurred, it was the full, irrevocable giving of that sacrifice. What is it that Paul is calling the church to here? Paul's calling the church to a, a level of commitment that is characterized by sacrifice. It is, therefore, a radical request, but it is also a practical request. Because I can phrase this in two ways. He's saying, offer your bodies to God. Offer your bodies alive to God. Give yourself to Him. Give your life to Him. Not just your physical being, but the entirety of your life. And what is implied here, this idea of giving your body, it is in the present tense, so it implies a continual surrender or a commitment that will need to be renewed because it will tend to grow cold. Isn't that exactly the way it works in our marriage relationships? The love that we had can cool off and we need to breathe fresh air into it, reignite the flames of love and commitment that we had at the beginning. It takes maintenance. It is a regular and perpetual, continual surrender of our lives to God. But it is, in fact, very clearly a practical request. It's not abstract. It's not mystical. It is a visible and tangible expression of our love to God. I think one way we could say this is your body counts. It is the vehicle in which you live and represent God. Your body, your physical existence, that instrument in which you live is important to the cause of Christ. Now we live in an age that has tended to kind of elevate the worship of the body. Much media runs on the issue of appearance. And so we live in a culture that tends to be obsessed with the physical body and hanging on to it and preserving it. The Christian view is utterly different. Your body counts and should be given over to God in its fullest way. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Listen to this. He says, do you not know that your body, your physical existence, is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He is in you. You have received him from God. You are not your own. Your body was bought with a price. Your body, soul, and spirit. Therefore, honor God with your body and with your spirit, which belong to him. Folks, this morning, do we understand this? God wants all of us. He wants us entirely devoted to his work, holding nothing back. No matter what shape your body's in, one writer talked about a body being too heavy or too skinny, too wrinkly, too blotchy, too achy, hard of hearing, hard of sight. God doesn't care. He wants you. He wants you to put aside all your excuses and reasons for why you can't be used by him. 
He wants you to give your life to him. And he has made it possible because he purchased you through his shed blood. What matters most in the kingdom of God is not how we look, but how we act. What matters most is not our appearance, but our behavior. And folks, we live in a world that pressures and pressures and pressures the issue of externals. And God is calling us to be people that are committed to his cause, body, soul, and spirit, in our complete entirety. I was challenged this morning as I walked into this building uh, and saw Bob and Arlene Dietrich sitting in chairs to do their service. The word that ran through my mind was commitment. Commitment. Folks, for some of you, you might have thought about coming to church based upon the weather this morning. That's how weak and shallow our commitment can become. What God wants from us, what God expects from us, what God deserves from us, what is reasonable is that we give ourselves completely to him. Here's the question you need to ask yourself. Does God have my life? Does God have my life? Because what we will talk about in Romans chapter 12 three through eight will be utterly meaningless if God does not have my life first. You see, I can't commit to my brothers and sisters in Christ until I have first released myself to God. Because what will happen is if I have not released myself fully to God, I will participate in relationships for what I get out of them, not what I bring to them. Because I'm not finding my full satisfaction and devotion in God. So this surrender to God precedes surrender to each other. Commitment to God and his purposes in light of the sheer goodness of God precedes giving ourselves to each other. That's what I say to people when they're in in the process of premarital counseling. Your relationship with each other will only be as good as your relationship to God. And as you pursue God, you will find that you come closer together. That's the way it works. Otherwise, we pursue each other for selfish reasons, for external reasons, physical reasons, material reasons. Ask yourself the question this morning, does God have my life? Living, alive, walking, talking, going to work, spending time with my family, enjoying fellowship with friends. Does God have my life in its entirety? Another way to ask this question is this. Can people count on you, on me, in our service to Christ? Do we understand the value and importance of what God is seeking to do through the outworking of his physical expression on earth through the local church? Are we committed or are we half-hearted? Okay, we need to challenge ourselves as a church family, I believe, in this area. Commitment means this. It means the sacrifice of time. It means adjusting our plans. It means fulfilling obligations. It means rethinking how we live and how we spend our time together. May God help us to grasp this issue of commitment that involves self-sacrifice. Thirdly, this call to commitment, Paul says, is reasonable. Look at the end of verse 12. He says, give your bodies as living sacrifices, your body alive to God, holy and pleasing. This is, and the New International Version puts it this way, this is your spiritual act of worship. The King James Version captures it perhaps a little bit better. It says, this is your reasonable act of worship. 
The Phillips translation says, this is your intellectually justifiable response. Okay, when you look at what God has done for you, when you look at the saving grace of God that is revealed on the cross of Jesus Christ, how can you not give him your all? Because that's what he did for you. So the motivation, the sheer goodness of God. The nature of commitment, self-sacrifice. But the call to self-sacrifice is reasonable. That is to say, it is issued to people who have received the grace of God. Therefore, if we have received so much from Him, then it is natural that we would respond back to God by saying, God, here's my life. Here's my life. You have purchased it. You have changed it. You have redeemed it. And I give it all to you. When we see this call to commitment in this kind of a way, in light of the cross of Christ, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Folks, there are a lot of things that people commit to that make no sense to me. A lot of hobbies that people have that I just don't get. I don't see why collecting certain things makes people happy. Because one day when you die, you know what? It's all going to be left behind. And God calls us to a higher calling. God calls us to give up all, to commit ourselves to a cause that will matter for eternity. And when we see the call to commitment in light of, or in, the, in, in regards to the background of the cross of Christ and his greater sacrifice, our full surrender to God makes perfect sense. When the sacrifice of Christ is comprehended, release is easy. It's easy. To say, God, I want to deepen my commitment to you. I want to increase my level of surrender to you. This passage also goes on to show us that the prerequisite to commitment to usefulness in God's kingdom, this is a fascinating thing. The prerequisite to commitment and usefulness is personal holiness. Personal holiness. Guarding our hearts, being sure that we don't let sin reside there, being sure that we confess what needs to be confessed. Verse 1, he says, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Give yourselves to God. How is it that, how is it that we as Christians can cultivate holiness? Okay, and I think verse 2 gives us the practical response to that question. If God wants our lives offered to him alive in their entirety, holy and acceptable, how do we maintain a life that is like that? Verse 2 tells us exactly what we need to do. He says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The prerequisite to commitment is personal holiness. In this text, the holiness works in two ways. It is a call to nonconformity. That is, don't let the world press you into its mold. I don't know how many of you remember when you were children receiving a wood block that was a carved out icon of some kind. Uh, it may be scenery, maybe a car, various things. I remember this in a boys' brigade program I was involved in when I was a kid. They would give you this piece of wood, an instrument for pressing it out, and then a sheet of copper. You ever remember doing this? You lay the sheet of copper over top of the, the wood icon and then you push down in the, in the cavities and the 
piece of copper, after it's pressed on for a while and works from all different directions, begins to take the shape of the icon that is behind it. When you pull the copper away, it bears the image of what it has been pressed against. Okay? And what Paul is saying here is this. Don't let the world pressure you, conform you to its desires. So if I'm going to maintain holiness that leads to usefulness in the kingdom of God, in my life, I need to be sure that I resist the world's pressures, and they are many. They are abundant in our lives. One way to say that is, is this. Paul is saying, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you blend in without thought. We buy into the world's ideas, the world's desires, the world's methods. And God is challenging us. As one writer has said, don't be a chameleon that takes its color from its surroundings. Changeable and inconsistent. <clears throat> God wants us to be image bearers of Christ on a consistent basis in our life. People who resist the pressure of the world around them to shape them into its image. And also, holiness is a call to continual and courageous change. Notice how he says this. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing or changing of your mind. It's a fascinating statement because it's loaded with truth. Be transformed means to be from the inside out remade. Here's our tendency. Our tendency is to change our external behavior to meet people's expectations. Okay, when we do that, we are not becoming like Christ. We're becoming hypocrites. Okay? Because if I take my cues from my surrounding, <clears throat> when I'm at church, I act nice towards my wife. When I'm not at church, I treat her like trash. When I'm around my Christian friends at school, I talk like this. But when I'm around my non-Christian friends, I have a different dictionary and vocabulary. Here's what God says. God says, resist the pressure that comes from those around you to get you to be like them. And folks, this pressure is substantial. People don't like it when you live a holy, God-honoring life. That's why when there's bad news about a, quote, conservative politician, it travels speedily why because that person's supposed to have family values and people don't like the person who actually does have family values and so when you can prove that they don't have them they're glad for that news <clears throat> because that person's life lived in conformity to god's standards becomes a rebuke to those that live loose and play fancy free so your friends your acquaintances don't want you to live a holy life because your life stands up and says to them you could be different God wants to change you. Nobody likes to hear that. So you live in a world that constantly seeks to pressure you to get you into its mold. God says, resist that urge and continually and courageously pursue change in your life. Here's the question that comes to mind then. What are the tools that God wants to use in our lives that he has made available to help us to courageously and continually pursue change? I, three came to my mind as I asked this question. One is the word of God. Psalm 119, believe it's verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? 
but by keeping it according to thy word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It illuminates how boy-girl relationships should work. It illuminates how we should relate to material possessions. It illuminates how we should respond when we are wronged. It illuminates what kind of commitment we actually should have to the causes and purposes of God. So the word of God is one. Secondly, the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God who convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He is the precious gift of God that prompts us to continually and courageously pursue holiness. When friends are saying, no, it's okay if you watch this movie and you're saying, I'm sorry, I can't stay. The Spirit of God stands up within you and says, you're exactly right. Stand firm. Don't be a chameleon. Don't change to the colors of your surroundings. Be true. Be a person of integrity. So you have the Word of God, you have the Holy Spirit, and then you have this. You have godly relationships. Exhort one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Folks, God says, be committed courageously and continuously. And then he gives us resources to be sure that that happens. What I love is the end of verse 2. He says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. When? Well, in all kinds of circumstances. Because the word of God and the spirit of God and the witness and counsel of wise Christian friends will help you to discern God's will. And when you test and prove it out, it is good. It is pleasing. It is perfect. Folks, that's the joy of life, isn't it? When God gives clarity about morality, when God gives clarity about material possessions, about decisions that you have to make in your life, it's good, it's acceptable, it's perfect. It honors and glorifies God. And if I'm going to be used by God, I need to begin to pursue things that are going to matter for eternity. And I do that by pursuing courageously and continually personal holiness this takes alertness and mental toughness because the world around you wants you to blend in to their system the simple test that we need to apply in so many areas of our life is this question how does or will this decision please god how will this decision please god how will watching this movie please and honor god How will this expenditure advance what God is seeking to do in my life? How will this reaction advance the cause of Christ? You see, so we have to start to test it out. Because commitment needs to be preceded by the pursuit of holiness. The last thought I want to leave with you this morning takes us back into verse 1. It says, this offering of your bodies, of yourselves to God as living, breathing sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him, is your spiritual act of worship. Okay, the last observation I want to make this morning is this. The goal of commitment. Okay, if I'm going to commit to God, I shouldn't do it because it's going to make me look good. It'll cause people in my church family to respect and appreciate me more highly. No, the goal of commitment is joyful, God-exalting, Christ-exalting worship. The goal of commitment is not, you know what, I feel a lot less guilty when I'm committed. No, the goal is, I know that God is glorifying His name and the name of His Son as I live in a sensitive relationship with the Spirit of God. 
The goal of all commitment in the Christian life should be joyful worship. Which leads me to have to ask this question. What is worship? Well, worship is not a feeling. Worship is not necessarily expressiveness. It's not people singing together on Sunday. It can be, but it's not necessarily that. Because I can do all of those things while my heart is far from God. While I'm not pursuing holiness. So what then is joyful worship that is the goal of all commitment? I believe it is this. It is treasuring the surpassing value of Jesus Christ above everything else in my life. Okay? It is treasuring the value of Christ exalted over everything else in my life. above health, above financial stability, above my time, above religion, above reputation, above my goals, above my family. The goal of biblical commitment is that God will be more intensely and gloriously worshipped when I allow my life to be simply changed by His grace. Folks, isn't that how it starts? The psalmist says this, He He took me out of the pit of miry clay, He placed my feet upon a rock, and He put a new song in my mouth, Many will see it and fear and trust in the Lord. You know what the psalmist was happy about? People would see his life change from destitution and despair to a place of joy and confidence in God, and he would attribute his new position to the glory of God. You see, the goal of commitment, the goal of giving ourselves fully to God, is that when we release ourselves fully to God, what we are saying is, He is worthy of my whole life. I shouldn't hold anything back from him. Why? In light of what he has done for me. We used to sing a song when I was a kid. Uh, uh, After all he's done for me, after all he's done for me, how can I do less than give him my best and live for him completely after all he's done for me? You see, folks, what do we do? We tend to forget all that God has done for us. And it leads to a weakened commitment. But we remember, when we remember what he has done for us, how glorious and magnificent and incomprehensible it is, we will be more deeply committed because we want people to know that he's worthy of this kind of sacrifice and commitment. The goal of our commitment should not be to enhance our own reputation. And we can do that. Let's just be honest with each other. We can't be in the process of kind of padding our resume in terms of our commitment. The Apostle Paul takes a phenomenally different perspective in Philippians chapter 3. Let me just read for you this passage real quickly. Philippians 3. Paul says, whatever it was to my profit, I can now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ as my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, and consider them rubbish that I may have Christ. Do you see how that exalts God? Paul could say, I give up my reputation, I give up my previous credentials, all the things that made me uh, the man. Paul's saying, I'm going to give all that up so that I can have the approval of Christ, so that my life can exalt Christ. I want people to know, Paul is saying, that Christ is the greatest treasure that one can have in all of life. And the result is that he just completely surrendered and yielded himself to this God-forming perspective. He was transformed by a changed mind and heart. He treasured Jesus Christ above all things. And the question that comes to my mind is this. Tim, do you treasure Christ above all things? Because if you do, you will be more deeply committed to him. If you look back in Romans 11, 
verse 33, which kind of leads into this call to commitment. Notice what Paul says. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Who has ever called us God to owe them something? No, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he says, therefore, in light of that, I urge you, brothers and sisters, commit yourselves to God. Give your life alive. Offer your life in its entirety to God. Be committed to the cross of Christ. This treasuring and the surpassing value of Christ above all things is always expressed in selfless acts of service in Jesus' name. If I love Christ and the goal of my heart and the desire of my heart is to exalt him and his precious and his value above all things, it will always be expressed in selfless, devoted, committed service to the body of Christ. In our homes, in our schools, in our church, God wants us to be devoted to selfless acts of service. But here's the question we need to ask ourselves. In our service, in our commitment, are we making much of Jesus? Are we making much of his all-surpassing value? Matthew 5.16 certainly says to us, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. heaven." So we have a mandate to live out this Christian life. That is a call that God has given us. But if I stop simply with acts of love and never communicate to people the glorious, all-surpassing value of Jesus, I have given people temporary help. So our selfless acts must be done with an end in mind, the goal in mind of being sure that Jesus Christ and his love is communicated to those individuals. Because in doing that, what I'm saying is this, I love you and I'm glad to help you, but there is something more important. There is someone you need to know who can not only alter your temporary circumstances in acts of love and service, there is someone who died on the cross to pay your sin who can alter your eternal destiny. Folks, that's why we should value Christ supremely above everything. Because he's going to make a difference in our lives in eternity. So all of our acts of service in which we seek to glorify him and express his value above all things, all of those acts of service should have an intention or goal in mind, and that is to communicate the surpassing value of Jesus to the world around us. Don't only give people temporary help when you have eternal help to give. And when we tie into our commitment a love and passion for the exaltation of Christ, what we will do is we will be regularly communicating him to the world around us. Because we'll say this, look, doing good things is wonderful, but I can do good things to pad my resume to improve my reputation. We as Christians should do good things so that we can put Jesus Christ front and center as the treasure that is more valuable than anything else in our lives. Hebrews 13 ties these two thoughts together in a very powerful way. Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Listen to this. He says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us 
continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Now, what is he saying? The writer of Hebrews is saying those sacrifices of good deeds please and honor God, but do it through Jesus. The fruit of lips that confess his name and tie to that confession acts of love that make the confession of faith in his name believable because Christ never comes into a life without producing change. There is no genuine regeneration apart from a life that is transformed. God wants his church to be fully devoted. He wants us to be committed to his cause. This is an area as a, as a church family I think that we need to look at in serious ways. I think we as a church family need to contemplate how devoted we really are to what God wants us to do in our community and in our church family. We need to be people who are selfless in their service. We need to be people who out of a knowledge of the sheer goodness of God say my desire is to serve him in his body, the church. We need to be people who are persistent in pursuing holiness because we know that genuine commitment can only be maintained if there is holiness living behind it and that the goal of all of our commitment should be that ultimately we together have the privilege of exalting and glorifying the name of Christ, the Savior whose name is above all names. Would you examine your heart this morning by asking yourself this question? Am I committed Am I deeply committed to what God is seeking to do through his church today? Am I deeply committed to my church family? Am I willing to get involved in the lives of others? And if this morning you, 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 you look at that question, you say, well, Pastor Tim, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm as committed as God wants me to be. I want, I want you to, to press yourself into this passage of scripture. Press yourself into the observations about commitment that are made here. Is your life characterized by selfless sacrifice? Is there a persistent and continual courageous pursuit of holiness? Is there a perpetual desire to exalt Jesus Christ above all things by giving of yourself, your time, talents, and possessions? Are you committed? If as you look at that question and you're honest and you say, Pastor Tim, I don't think that I'm as committed as I should be. Here's my encouragement to you this morning. Blow the wind of gratitude over your heart by remembering the sheer goodness of God. Just let that blow over the embers of your heart. Let it fan into flame a commitment that is white hot a commitment that is so filled with love and joy and passion for Christ that it begins to change how we live our lives. Be deeply committed. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this text calls out to you too. It says, in light of the sheer goodness of God that is displayed in sending His Son to bear your wrath, in light of that, would you not come to him? Would you not come to him and say, Lord, I surrender all to you. I give my life to you. I this morning sense the call of your spirit, the knocking on the door of my heart. I want to swing open the door of my heart and receive the shed blood of Christ as the cleansing atonement for my sin, as the only necessary payment for my forgiveness. Would you do that this morning?
If you've never done that, and you sense God calling and drawing, would you swing open the door of your heart? If you're here this morning as a professing Christian, and you look and you say, you know what, there's never been any transformation in my life. I've made a claim to regeneration, but there has never been any transformation. I would encourage you this morning to go to God and say, God, if I am not genuinely converted, I want to be so that I can be genuinely committed to what it is that you're seeking to do in this community, in this church family, in this world for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We bow our heads together this morning. Father.